Hello everyone, I'm Master Sergeant Shane Hughes. And I'm Captain Courtney Slater. And you're listening to Beyond the Horizon, a podcast produced by the Ohio Air National Guard's 178th Wing in Springfield, Ohio. Joining us today is Major General James Camp. Today we discussed his military career, his role as the A-TAG, and his philosophy on leadership. I hope you enjoy the show. Sir, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. If you would, just go ahead and start off by telling me a little bit about why you enlisted and how that led you to where you are today. Okay, well, the second part of that question is a a long story, but uh, going back, uh, reflecting on my childhood, I grew up in a family of military service, uh, so my father served in, in Vietnam uh, in the Air Force. My, my grandfather, his father, served in the Army Air Corps in, in World War II. Uh, my other grandfather served on a PT boat in the Pacific during World War II. And most of my elder relatives, uh, uncles, cousins, on both sides of the family served in the military. It was, it was very common back then. Had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with those folks growing up and realized that they had more influence on me than I realized at the time but I enjoyed listening to their stories. Some didn't talk much about their service because of the, the situations that they, that they were in. Uh, but I was, you know, being around the military my whole life, I think had a, a major role in my decision-making. That combined with a- athletics, you know, I was a very competitive athlete in high school, uh, played football in college, and that team environment, uh, the competitiveness of a team uh, was something that I knew I was going to miss, you know, at some point in my life when I leave college and go into the into whatever job environment that may be. And I luckily uh, fell in love with flying airplanes in college, made the decision to leave football actually to pursue getting a uh, private pilot license my junior year in college, uh, which is probably a good decision. I reached my peak as an athlete as I uh, sat the bench. <laughs> That's okay. It happens to all, all athletes. Uh, but anyway, I started flying and, you know, I, I was, I'll, I'll admit, I was influenced by the movie Top Gun. You know, I saw that and, and could picture myself doing something like that. How I ended up in the Air National Guard is an interesting story because I didn't initially pursue that. I was considering the Air Force Academy right out of high school. I made the decision to, to not go that route because I wanted to play competitive sports and I wasn't good enough to play Division One. And uh, my father gave me the advice that, you know, if you really want to fly at the end of college, you can always join the Air National Guard right here in Columbus, Ohio, which, you know, I was from Dublin. So, and I, I went to the Navy and I talked to them and they said uh, it wasn't a fit. So I wasn't able to go active duty. And once I got my private pilot license, I started canvassing Air National Guard flying wings uh, pretty much here in the Midwest, trying to find a fighter unit because I was bound to determine to, to fly a fighter. I got hired by Rickenbacker. I was actually working in Washington, D.C. in my first job out of college. Uh, they called me and said, we need you to come back so you can in process and go to pilot training. So uh, that was a long road for me. I had four or five other units tell me no. Uh, so I, I got used to hearing the word no, but I kept putting my hat in the ring and eventually it happened. That's a really cool story of perseverance. Yeah. I've, one thing I've learned, well, I'll tell you, before I get into how I got to where I'm sitting today, uh, one thing, one thing's for certain, you have to be prepared to hear the word no. I've, I've been told no three times to command opportunities. And that's one thing I've, I've kind of discovered is that when you're told no, people watch what you do next. That's probably your defining moment with your peers with your peers and people you work with. If you're told no for a position and how you handle that and how you move forward uh, is going to define your next opportunity. So every time a door closes, I found that another door opens. You just have to have the courage to walk through it. Another constant that I've learned, especially in, the, in being in the role of ATAG, every airman I've ever talked to, uh, I haven't found one yet that's been in for a long period of time 
where their career went exactly as planned. You know, I've, I've talked to younger airmen when they say, I'm going to do this, and then my next step, and they, they kind of have their path laid out for them for themselves. And uh, I just usually smile and say, well, uh, be flexible because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what opportunity is going to be in front of you. Just be ready when it does. And if you get that twisted knot in your gut because you're, you know, slightly afraid of, can I do this or can I, you know, should I go down this road? That's typically, I think, the universe telling you you need to take that step. Nothing in my career what I've ever predicted. That's, that's the one constant with everybody I know who serves long enough. So from pilot to command, mm-hmm. what was that path like? You know, when you first start out, in my mind, when you first start out in the military, regardless of what your AFSC is, you know, mine happened to be uh, pilot, you really focus on being tactically proficient at your job. It's not as much about leadership when you're starting out, especially as a second lieutenant trying to learn how to fly an airplane. And in, in this case, for me, it was about becoming really good at what I, what I do, right? I, I want that credibility. You know, if you look at most, I'll just take a flying squadron, for example. If you look at most flying squadron commanders, the path to command, first and foremost, is operational competency. You have to be, you know, looked at by your peers and somebody that they would trust, you know, flying an airplane into bad weather with all their family on board in the back, knowing this person, whoever it is, that's flying the aircraft is is capable and I trust them. So that's to me the first part of any airman's journey is becoming really good at their AFSC. As time passes and you become proficient and you, you, you hit different milestones uh, in your, your operational world, there's always the opportunity to, for example, for, for myself, I had the opportunity to deploy a few times as a, as a staff member. So it wasn't necessarily as much about flying the airplane as it was enabling that mission. And that's where I think I really first started to step into the leadership world and understand there's more to it. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, to get an airplane off the ground and and safely execute a mission. Uh, So that was really around the time when I was, you know, I'd say a senior company grade officer, you know, senior captain is when I started to get opportunities for staff. And then eventually that led to higher level staff positions on deployments so my husband's a pilot and, you know, he's kind of joked that sometimes people look at deploying in a staff position when they're a pilot and they don't want to do it. They don't want to do the staff position. They want to go and fly the air, airplane when they're overseas. Can you talk a little bit more about the value of taking on those different roles than just the the black and white, I'm a pilot, I fly, I go. Yeah, so every operator that I know in my in my entire career, if they could, they would fly the airplane every day, uh, especially in a deployed environment. And it, it, it's hard to get young aviators to understand the value of digging into the, to the staff side, to understanding how an operational support squadron works, what all is involved with the actual mission before it even leaves the ground. I would argue that, especially in the aviation career field in the military, if a young person is not willing to take that step and get into the support side of of the mission and to broaden their experiences beyond operating the aircraft, it's gonna be a challenge for them to break into any type of leadership role beyond maybe a flight commander. So as I jumped into some of these staff experiences, it's really amazing to me that what I learned and some of the um, 
I'll give you an example. As a, as a major, I was working in Turkey, on, and we were um, doing the Black Sea redeploy and deploy tracks uh, for, you know, the Iraq no-fly zone. And I remember catching a mistake that could have led to catastrophic mission failure. So there was a presidential movement coming our direction, and because of a small little glitch in our computer system, we didn't see it coming. Luckily, we caught it at the last minute. We were able to provide the air refueling support needed, which was pretty much every aircraft we had. Otherwise, you can imagine that the mission failure when the president doesn't get the support they need to cross the Black Sea. So little things like that, it make, made you appreciate the value of, of good staff work. And, and staff is also, I think, the introduction to leadership because you have to make hard decisions, not necessarily popular. Uh, when you tell a crew, I need you to do this, and maybe it's not what they want to do. Maybe they don't want to sit alert, uh, you know, on, on the ramp in the hot sun in, in Turkey in the middle of August. But you might make that decision, I need an alert aircraft just in case, you know. So that was a, that was a good learning curve for me. That was a, I wasn't happy that I was chose to be, you know, on the air staff deployed, but I learned a lot from it. So I'm very thankful I did it. And I tell all, all pilots, all crew members, if you get a chance to be a staff officer on deployment, take it because you're, you're, you're going to learn much more than you will flying the mission. Would you talk a little bit more about your experiences while deployed and how those experiences have shaped your views on leadership? Sure. I'll try to give you a rundown of how I got to where I'm at right now. And it's, it's, it almost seems random. You know, I flew up until 9-11. In fact, it's interesting as I reflect back. Around 9-11, I was at the 10-year the point in my career. My plan was to separate from the Air National Guard on 1 October. So just a few weeks after 9-11 actually occurred, I was a captain, fairly proficient in the KC-135. So I'd been flying an airplane my, my, whole, my whole career at that point and was flying for United Airlines. So I got hired by United Airlines in 1997. And in fact, on September 9th, uh, I was flying the 767 out of Newark, the same flight that crashed two days later, Flight 93. So on September 9th, uh, I was in my United Airlines uniform. I was planning on separating from the guard. I came back on 9-11, the morning of, I was driving on 270 on the outer belt, heading to Rickenbacker to basically do a couple of training periods, some ground training. On the way to Rickenbacker, I heard the, you know, the first airplane uh, struck one of the towers. My first thought was, well, this is a probably a small aircraft because I, you know, I'm just driving in a car listening to the radio. When I pulled into Rickenbacker, I saw that um, I went into the flight room and I saw the second aircraft hit the second tower. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. I knew instantaneously that that was a game changer for us. Uh, quickly after that, the squadron commander, you know, looked at me and said, hey, Jim, I need you to grab a pilot, grab a boom operator and take the alert aircraft and head to the Pentagon immediately. So uh, we sprinted to the airplane. We were the only airplane basically airborne east of the Mississippi, according to the, the controller, other than Air Force One, the fighters that were scrambled. Uh, so we headed to the Pentagon. I saw the fire burning from, uh, must have been at least 50 miles away. It was a clear blue day. Saw the fire burning at the Pentagon and we refueled the fighters. Uh, that was an interesting event for me because uh, we did not take our classified secrets with us, so we couldn't authenticate who we were. It was a very uncomfortable 30 seconds for me because I was unable to authenticate. I'll say my co-pilot was, was white as a ghost. 
He had no idea what, well, what are we going to do now? Uh, the reason I say this is because this is burned into my brain. Every, every minute of every part of that day is something that I think most Americans can remember and they never forget it. After we refueled the fighters and we were out of gas uh, on our way back to Rickenbacker, it occurred to me that this was the first sortie in response, one of the first sorties in response to the 9-11 event that we were a part of, and that was actually the start of Operation Noble Eagle. And by the time we got back to Rickenbacker, we had already launched three other tankers all over the country, you know, Chicago, New York City, uh, Atlanta, providing air refueling caps over some of these large populations because we didn't know what was coming at us uh, from, from, you know, the east. So that was a turning point for me. I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, but fast forward, after 9-11, I basically never went back to United. I, I did for small spurts of time, but I volunteered for every deployment we had. I even spent time at uh, Air Mobility Command working in the Tanker Airlift Control Center. And if you'd have told me that I would go work 12-hour shifts as a duty officer willingly, uh, that, I, that I would do that rather than fly an airplane for United Airlines, I would have said, you're crazy. Uh, but everything shifted for me. My focus shifted to uh, flying airplanes uh, with a purpose. And I basically never went back. And I, United Airlines in 2006 kind of pinned me down and said, Jim, what are you going to do? Do you want to continue to fly for United? Because I was kind of running out of military leave at that time, and I, and I made a bold move. Then I said, no, I'm going to resign. So I resigned from United, and a few months later, got hired as a full-time technician instructor pilot at Rickenbacker. And during my interview, I told him I just resigned from United Airlines. That's how serious I am about my military career. And, and luckily, uh, they hired me. So when I became a full-time instructor pilot, that was um, an opportunity for me to, to uh, really start to develop, I think, as a leader. Uh, I quickly tried to apply for various command positions. I was told no when I applied to be the OSS commander, and I, I, I kind of made a, a bold move at that point, and I joined a provisional flying squadron down in Hurlburt in special ops. It was a 745th special operations squadron, and we were flying the RC-26 aircraft, so there's only 11 of those in the country. They're in 11 different guard states, and they had been flying special ops missions, manned ISR, in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, for a few years, and I volunteered to, to uh, fly with them for a year. So I went down to Hurlburt, got qualified in the RC-26, and this was in 2012, right after I just got told no for a squadron command, and I wanted to do something broadening, and I, I thought that I would get joint credit because it was, a, it was truly a joint unit. But I deployed, went to Afghanistan, and that's where I think that first deployment to Afghanistan, as intense as it was, was when I had uh, an aha moment as an officer. So we had just, you know, if you've ever traveled on a rotator overseas, it's, it's, a, it's a painful experience, or it can be. Uh, but we landed there in, in Afghanistan, and after two days of travel, and when we walked into the squadron, it was a manned ISR squadron, so they had video feed of one of their aircraft uh, on an operational mission that was unfolding as we walked in. And I saw all the airmen, there were about 40 of them, watching the video screen. They all became very excited. I think they achieved their mission objective. We'll just leave it at that. 
And when they all turned around to look at all of us new pilots that were standing there, they didn't have on rank. They were in multi-cam uniforms. They were totally sanitized. I didn't know who the commander was. I didn't know the, who the logistician was. I didn't know who the personnel officer was. I mean, it was just a group of people. That was my first experience where it really, truly hit me that it doesn't matter what your AFSC is, uh, because without the cohesiveness of that small deployed team in an austere location, that mission is not going to happen. So that was a, an awakening for me. Later on that deployment, uh, we learned that they planned to divest of all the RC-26 aircraft. Uh, most of the air crew that were there were full-time RC-26 pilots, and the thought of not having a, a full-time AGR job when they got back because they were going to lose their airplanes at a 12, 13-year point was very frightening for them. So the morale of that deployed squadron was probably at its lowest because they just heard the airplanes are going to go away. Well, they're still here today and probably will be for a long time, but simultaneous to them learning that, that they were going to lose their mission, the squadron commander back at Hurlburt was relieved of command. This was a defining moment for me. One of the gentlemen looked at me and said, you should put in for this. You should put in to be the squadron commander. And I asked him why. He said, because you're not emotionally attached to the RC-26 program. You bring an outside perspective. You're not a lifelong RC-26 pilot. And you're a lieutenant colonel, and I think you should, you should put in for it because you're kind of naturally leading us through this problem here. Uh, so I, the next day, picked up the phone and called the colonel that was in charge of the 745th Provisional Squadron there at AFSOC. And I introduced myself and I said, I'd like to uh, throw my hat in the ring to be the commander of the squadron. And I think this is a very valuable leadership lesson that I want to foot stomp. He said, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I did. I told him what I was doing there, that I was a lifelong tanker, tanker guy from Rickenbacker and I volunteered to do this. He said to me, well, do you even know who you work for? Uh, he's implying here at AFSOC, down at Hurlburt, you know, which is kind of the headquarters for AFSOC, who do you work for? And I said, well, sir, I work for all the airmen of the 745th. That's who I work for. I'll obviously execute your intent. And I meant it because I was working on behalf of all the folks there deployed in Afghanistan that said, you're the right guy to do this. They all rallied behind me, put in for it. He said, that's not the answer I'm looking for, but you're hired. So on a phone call, never met me, he said, when do you come home? I said, April 8th. He said, great. Uh, there's no leave for you. So when you get back, uh, come see me or I'll meet you at the airplane. And you get started on April 9th. And I said, it's a deal. So that was my first command. I actually got my first squadron command in the Air Force by picking up the phone and asking a colonel to do, you know, for the, for the job. And he said, the reason he hired me is because of my answer. Who do you work for? He said, I like it. You're hired. So came back from that squadron command when I came back to Rickenbacker. And interestingly enough, your husband was in my, uh, at the time was in my technician position when I came back from active duty. It was unexpected because they shut the program down. Rickenbacker really wasn't prepared to have me back. And I was, remember, I was told no to a squadron command before I left. So when I came back, they didn't know what to do with me. They had no idea where to put me. So this is, this is something else that I would say, never say never, uh, because I took the opportunity to be 
the deputy mission support group commander as a pilot. And that was, uh, I was almost ridiculed for that. Why would a pilot go be a deputy mission, acting deputy mission support group commander? And I did that. Uh, that was a, a four or five month assignment for me. Uh, I then became the OSS commander, but I became the OSS commander after I was told no to the flying squadron. So I got some squadron command time at Rickenbacker. Uh, I put in for the 179th Mission Support Group Command position at the same time. So a lot happening in a two-year period for me. And, you know, again, told no multiple times for Squadron Command here in, here in Ohio. And I got told no at Mansfield to be the Mission Support Group Commander. But something happened during that interview, and this is something I think every airman should realize. Every chance you get to interview, do it. Because the wing commander at Mansfield, during my Mission Support Group Command interview, asked me what my proudest moment was in my career. And I said, my proudest moment in my career was when every member of the 745th Squadron down in AFSOC, every single one of us volunteered to deploy for a year to wrap the program up to Afghanistan if need be. And I said, seeing those airmen step up and being willing to go for a year to support our customers downrange was my you know, proudest moment uh, in the Guard as their commander. Well, I didn't get the job. Went back to Rickenbacker, and later, very shortly after that, General Bartman asked some of our commanders, he said, you know, I'm looking for somebody, maybe even a pilot, that would be willing to come to Joint Force Headquarters and, and be the deputy HRO, which basically is like a deputy J-1. You're essentially a personnel officer as a lieutenant colonel. And Colonel Gary McHugh at the time said, yeah, I know a guy that'll do it. And you ought to call Jim Camp. So General Bartman did. And I was command directed to the deputy HRO position, non-flying. So I wasn't flying airplanes anymore at Joint Force Headquarters uh, as a lieutenant colonel. That was uh, a very difficult decision. Uh, I'm glad I had people giving me good advice. who said, you're going to really have a broad background now. Go do that. So I did that. I made 06, became the, or became the HRO. And then uh, General Bartman gave me the choice of command, either the 121st, or the, I'm sorry, the 121st Air Refueling Wing or the 179th Airlift Wing. And he said, which one do you want? And I said, I want, I want the C-130 Wing. And he asked me why. I said, because I've never flown the C-130. That to me seems to be the bigger challenge rather than going back to my home at the 121st where everybody knew me. So I took the opportunity to take command at, at the 179th. And uh, that was a great experience for me. And it was too short. A year and a half later, I never expected to get a phone call to interview for the ATAG job, but I did and I got it. Could not have predicted my path. And every time a door closed in my face, another one opened. I wasn't really exactly excited about walking through that door to JFHQ as a deputy HRO, but I cannot imagine being in command or being in the job I have now without fully understanding uh, the personnel system and dealing with airmen and dealing with people. So the personnel background that I got, uh, I think really helped me be successful as a commander. Well, I'm, you know, listening to your story, you've bounced around quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, DC, you're deploying, you're going down to Florida, uh, back to Columbus, up to Mansfield. Can you talk a little bit about the support system that you had in the background and family support? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. You know, that yeah, side. Absolutely. Very fortunate. With, with my family. Uh, my wife, Cynthia, 
uh, bless her heart, has, has been nothing but supportive. I'll be honest, when I told her I was going to Florida for a year, she said, no problem, I'm coming with. Uh, so uh, with, the, with the kids, it worked out just fine. Our youngest went to school down there with us you know, for third, third grade, and we had an opportunity to live close to the ocean. So that, that wasn't a hard sell. Everything else, all the deployments, it's all been uh, kind of a balancing act. And I know pretty much every soldier and airman in, in, in the Ohio National Guard is, is probably deployed, at, at least has deployed or will deploy. That balance of uh, having, a, having a family that's supportive uh, couldn't, couldn't have done it without them. Couldn't have, couldn't have done it without the support of uh, my parents and, you know, helping pick up the slack when things go, things go wrong. And, and, you know, the children, your kids don't have a say most of the time. They're not, you know, they didn't say, hey, I want to be born into a family of military service. Uh, but I think all of those, I have four children, and I think all of them now, if you would ask them, would agree that the sacrifice that they had to make for me doing what I've been doing for the last, you know, 33 years has helped them tremendously with perspective. And, you know, I think they're they're proud of their support to my service. So I, I wouldn't change anything, but you're absolutely right. Uh, I've been very fortunate with support. And I'll say this about force development and taking opportunities. There's, there's a time in your life when it's right, and there's a time in your career when you need to stay put. And there were other opportunities that I did not pursue uh, because I needed to be home as much as possible with my, with my children. In fact, that's one of the reasons I left the airline life was because I felt like I was constantly coming and going, at least with a full-time military career. When I was gone, they knew I was gonna be gone, gone for, for months. But when I was home, I was, I was truly home. So I chose that path for my children. And ironically, when I was a young first lieutenant, I was given the opportunity to go fly F-18s in the Navy on a four-year tour where they were going to take some Air Force pilots. I had gone through T-38 training and fighter lead-in school. So I wasn't fighter qualified, but I had the, the training background to, to fly fighters. And when I was offered that F-18 opportunity, I chose not to for family reasons. So there's a time to move and there's a time to stay put and you have to work that out with your family because if you don't have the family support uh, it's going to be tough to sustain long-term service you know you got to take care of the family and balance so i couldn't have balanced any of this without my wife cynthia she's amazing all right so you've been the a tag during a rather tumultuous time in our country's history would you be willing to talk a little bit about what your experience has been like over the past several years and how that has shaped your views on leadership during a crisis absolutely let me start by saying that i've learned more in the last two to three years of my career than i did in the first 30. it's humbling uh, with covid you know, there's no playbook. There was no, you know, there's no guidance coming down from any MAGCOM saying, here's how you fly airplanes safely in a global pandemic. So that truly was, was humbling to not have answers for my commanders. I will say that the biggest lesson I've learned during COVID is trust. I believe trust is the currency of leadership. But if I look at a commander at a wing and I say, I need you to figure out how to fly airplanes safely in a global pandemic and because we have a mission to do, I have to trust them to trust their people to come up with solutions in each part of the base. So you almost have to completely let go. And when I say to you, I trust you, words are great, but unless I'm willing to truly let you run the show and make your own decisions, uh, if I try to micromanage that situation or second guess, that's not trust. I already trusted my commanders. I trust the airmen in Ohio at all levels. Uh, 
because I let them lead and I just provide support where, where they need it. So in some ways, my job has been probably the easiest in the Ohio Air Guard since the pandemic because I have such a great team. We've built a great team of leaders and I truly had to trust them to make it happen. You know, we have Title 10 missions going on here at Springfield 24-7. We have a Title 10 alert, federal alert 24-7 at Toledo. We have tankers on alert every day down at Rickenbacker. And those are federal requirements that we have to we have to manage. And the way the airmen stepped up during all these domestic missions that we had to support, I think at one point there were 73 individual types of missions, everything from domestic response, uh, you know, they had some issues in Cleveland. They needed de- air defenders to go augment the police forces there. Uh, we had to put folks inside of, inside of uh, prisons to help take care of the inmates. We had to do mobilized testing, vaccinations. It was, it was just a historic moment for the Air National Guard, I believe, with our response while maintaining that balance with the Title X mission. So the one word that pops up to me is just trust. And trust means don't micromanage, truly trust your people and realize who you work for. So if you ask me, who do I work for? I will not say I work for General John Harris. I report to General John Harris, the adjutant general, and I execute his intent. I'll, I'll execute the governor's intent. I'll execute combatant commander's intent. But at the end of the day, I work for all the airmen in Ohio. So my job is to enable them. And the higher you go, people have asked me, what does it mean to put on more rank? More rank means you have to let go of more and more things because you cannot manage and control all the things that you need to as an ATAG without the trust of your command team. You have, to, you have to listen to them. You have to collaborate. You have to be willing to show your vulnerability and say, I don't have an answer. Help me. What do we need to do here? How are we going to get this done? Uh, so it was a great, humbling experience for me the last few years. I love that. Good. I feel like the the pandemic and everything was just kind of like plot twist to what's going on in the world, and I'm I'm proud of how how we handled it. It wasn't perfect. I'll tell you who learned a lot during this: the Army and Air staff at at headquarters really learned how to integrate together. The Army does some things well, and we do some things well. We're different, uh, but we kind of came together during that. It wasn't easy. Trust me. Uh, there were many many heated meetings. But it was, uh, it was an all-hands-on-deck team effort, and I know that a lot of our Army, Army folks learned a lot about the air and vice versa, our capabilities. So hopefully there won't be another worst day for the state of Ohio, but if, there, if it comes, I think we're going to be ready. We'll be ready to have our, our best day when they're having the yeah. worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on that note, mm-hmm. a lot happened. What goals did you have when you first stepped into the role as the A-TAG? How did those goals change, and what do you still have left that you want to do? Okay, let me, let me start with just a little bit of a, a lesson learned for me. Whenever you step into a, a new leadership position, a new role, there can be a tendency to want to hit the ground running. And I, I'm going to share something before I became the ATAG that I think is re- really, really important. When I first showed up at Mansfield at the 179th, I was an outsider. I didn't know anybody really at the base because not a lot of interaction with the 179th before then. So they knew who they knew who I was. They knew where I came from and my background. But I really I really didn't know the unit. I had all these ideas about what the unit needed. And it was perfect timing because we were preparing for our, our capstone inspection in just one year's period of time period of time. So I had one year to get the unit ready for the major a major inspection. And instead of hitting the ground running, I told my executive 
officer, I said, I want you to fill up my calendar for the next 30 days with as many 20 or 30 minute meetings as you can with as many people on this base as you can. That's all I want. She looked at me like I was, she's like, are you sure about that? That's going to be a lot of meetings. I said, yes, because I need to, I, I need to get to know the airmen here. And I, I think that's going to help me figure out what direction we, we need to head. So after multiple meetings, and I asked a simple question to every airman, help me understand Mansfield. What do I need to know about Mansfield, about this unit? And they told me, and I took notes. And after about a month, I was able to sit back and I realized, okay, here's where the unit is right now. I had a good measure of the culture and I came up with, uh, I guess my mission vision values, like this is, this is the direction we need to go and I have to build my team around me to do that. So that was, that helped me when I got to the ATAG position because on top of learning the Joint Force Headquarters dynamic and the folks in the Army that you have to work with, I say that as a negative, it's not that you have the pleasure of working with. <laughs> is an opportunity to, you know, take the same approach. Tell me what I need to know about Joint Force Headquarters. And then my scope of worrying about one flying wing to worrying about, at the time, four flying wings, six GSUs, 5,000 airmen, and all the diverse mission sets, and all the command team, you know, all the way down to uh, all the senior enlisted folks that I needed to meet and understand. I was very fortunate at the time because Major General Bartman, when he hired me, he, he gave me some advice. He said, Jim, I know it's going to be tempting to be here at Joint Force Headquarters. He said, if I were you, I would spend all of my time embedded with your airmen because you need, to, you need to have a really clear understanding of what those units are going through. You're going to have a lot on your plate, and so you need to get out and about and, and make visits and just uh, let them get to know you and you, you get to know them because it's really easy at Joint Force Headquarters, especially as the adjutant general to get pulled into many things on the state side for the governor out of necessity. So he said, I want you focused on the air guard and uh, get out and about. So I did. So that's how it started. So I had to figure out, okay, what are the challenges in the air guard? There are many. First of all, we'll start with the missions. I knew that the C-130s at some point were going to be in jeopardy with having legacy aircraft. I know the KC-135s were struggling with parts and trying to keep those airplanes flying. The 180th needed new alert facilities. Uh, the 179th had an enduring 24/7, or 178th rather had an enduring 24/7 mission. How are we going to be able to sustain that? So I started to grasp the challenges across the units, and then I also really wanted to focus on on the people and force management. Uh, we were in the process of changing from te a full-time technician force to AGRs. That conversion was happening. Managing resources, managing people's careers expectations, developing airmen, having a presence at the national level, having a Ohio National Guard presence at the Guard Bureau, combatant commands, MAGCOMs, all of those things matter strategically for Ohio. So I started to really embrace that managing of people concept so that, you know, who gets the next control grade wasn't a mystery, so that it wasn't just Joint Force Headquarters mandating it was the actual commanders sitting down with each other saying, how are we going to manage our resources here so that every airman reaches their full potential, but also has transparent, clear guidelines and expectations for length of career, accountability. Uh, so to try to encompass where I started and where we are now, um, it's a blur because of the level of activity. It's just been one challenge after after the next 
But I do know this. I do know that every wing is operating within their means when it comes to resources and control grades. We can almost take our hands off the wheel at this point at Joint Force Headquarters because I know when I depart as the ATAG, whenever that happens, I have a trained, ready team behind me that can step in and, and continue what we've started with uh, a culture of accountability, a culture of professionalism, but camaraderie as well. Uh, so I know we're not perfect, but I do feel very strongly that from where we started to where we are today, four, four and a half years later, uh, we've come a long way with, with managing people, resources, and forward thinking when it comes to missions and getting ahead of uh, all the changes in the national defense strategy that are coming at us all day, every day. It's been a great experience, but where I started, my priorities, and I'd say where I am now, the priorities are changing because the world is changing. We just saw our first flying unit lose their aircraft and they're going to a mission that hasn't even really been developed yet. And that's the wave of the future. So in your opinion, what defines a good leader? The definition of a good leader to me is, well, there's a lot because you can, you can think about the qualities that a good leader should have. But I think the definition of a good leader is apparent based on their effectiveness and the cohesiveness of their team. So when you think of any position in the military or, or even in the civilian world, there are positions where whoever's in that spot may have what they call perceived power because they have the rank or they have the position. That is not an effective leader. Power does not dictate effective leadership. Effective leadership to me is defined by someone who has a tight connection, which gives them a powerful influence over the folks they lead because they're connected. You can't have both. So to me, to be an effective leader, and it's sometimes counterintuitive in the military because you think, well, we have to be an organization of accountability and discipline. Of course we do. But a truly effective leader knows their people. They're, they're, they're humble. They show their vulnerability once in a while. They're not afraid to collaborate. They're not afraid to, to say, hey, help me out here. Let me bounce something off of you. Every person I have around me, I'm always transparent. I can answer to every single decision I've ever made, why I made it, how I made it, who I, con who I consulted with, because I'm, I'm not that smart of a person, so I need a lot of help. So a really effective leader, a good leader, is humble, surrounds themselves with a good team. Just to give you an example, if, if you have a team of people in the room as a leader and you already know the direction you want to go with a hard decision, ask your, ask your team members what they think. And when they speak up and somebody comes up with a good idea, don't be surprised if you go in a different direction that you thought you were going to go. If they hit the nail on the head, let them take the credit. It's not about you. So transparent, humble, um, and collaborative. Leadership to me is not power. It is a team sport. And the really good ones, the good ones that I've worked for in my, in my career, been fortunate enough to serve under and, and observe right now, are the ones that are trusted. And they trust their people. They're collaborative. But at the same time, a leader has to be willing to make the hard decision and you have to hold people accountable and you have to be consistent. I know that's a lot. I, I could go on. I've seen surveys where they say out of the 50 uh, words here, pick the top 20 that most define a good leader. And you could debate that all day long. The, the other thing I, I could say about leadership is 
you have to be yourself. You have to be genuine. Obviously, you, you, you want to be self-aware and, and control some of your weaknesses like I try to do all the time. But you have to be you have to be yourself and you have to trust why you're there. And I'll say this. There's two reasons why anybody's in a, in a position of leadership. One is because you're supposed to be there to have your mark on the organization, to make the to keep the organization moving, to make the changes necessary to adapt like what we've seen over the last few years. So you're there for a reason and dig in, but at the same time, realize that you're probably being developed for the next. And we're one of the only organizations, if you think about it, where we intentionally train our own replacements and we build a bench of qualified people to train our replacements. So right now I have four or five potential ATAG replacements that I, I'm training and I'm getting ready to go. That's counterintuitive. People would say, why would you want to replace yourself? Well, because if I'm not developing for the next and I'm not sure what my next is, once I've had my mark on the organization, it's time for me to step aside to keep the organization moving forward because that's the reality of what we do. We can't wear the uniform forever. All right. So on that note, what is next for you? Well, I've learned to never say never, right? Uh, so we'll, we'll caveat it with that. I think, I think for me, I'll be as transparent as I can be. I've been the ATAG for four and a half years. It's been a great experience. I'm starting to feel comfortable about the fact that I know that once I step, step out of this position, the train will keep running. And I know that at some point, it's good to have a fresh set of eyes looking at something from a different perspective to kind of take what you know, maybe I've started or contributed and refine that and, and, and have the energy to keep making changes. So for me, I don't intend on being the ATAG too much longer because I feel like I, I will have hit that point where I've had my, my, my impact on the organization. What is beyond ATAG? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm currently working at U.S. Transportation Command as the advisor to the commander there uh, in a dual hat role. So that's part-time thing for me. They've asked me to stay for a third year, so I've probably got an, at least another uh, year and a half of service left there at Transcom, and I intend to fulfill that commitment. But here in Ohio, I'm not sure. I just told myself, and I actually told all of my team, I, I don't intend to do this beyond about the five five year point ish. So I'm six months out from that mark, and I'm starting to have conversations with my family. I have other things I can do in life. Um, I'm not worried about that. Security to me is not the job you're in. It's your ability to produce. So I know I can produce. There's other things I can go do. Not ready to take the uniform off, but I'm, I'm not sure my future. We will see. Such a diplomatic answer. We will see. <laughs> it's true, But though. really, I it's mean. It's true, yes. Think about it. Like, I, I just don't think it's, at, at, at almost every command level, there's a sweet spot of time in the seat, time in the position. I'd say during the first year, you're struggling to find out what you don't know and really developing your strategy. Year two and three, you're probably hitting your stride and you're hopefully making changes by year four. I think in any command level position, you'll start to see the effects of that responsibility on people. To me, the steeper the hill gets, the harder I climb. And that's just my personality. So I'm, I'm gonna sprint to the finish line it's amazing to me when you see people that can be in leadership positions for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, how do they sustain that level of energy? Do they still have the energy? 
do they truly have the energy every day or are they just in kind of a cruise control because they're insecure about what they want to do next? So I don't want to be that guy. I still have the energy. I'm still climbing hard and running to the finish. But I, I will tell you that after probably you talk to me a year from now, after five years of doing this, it's probably time for me to figure out my next direction and to let somebody else take it that has the energy because it's a, it, the higher you go, the more rocks you put in your backpack and the heavier the load. There, it, it's, it's a 24-7 thing in the back of your mind as a commander that if you're truly engaged, you're all in 24-7. And that weighs on family. You have to learn to balance that all those things are important. But when you're carrying that load for a long period of time, it does, it does fatigue you. I'm suspect to somebody who wants to be in command for a very long period of time. I don't know the right length, but, you know, for me, uh, I'm getting close. So final question. Okay. Tell me about a time that you failed and what that taught you about resilience. That's a great question, but I have a hard time defining the word failure. Failure to me is every time I didn't get a job, every time I've made a mistake as a leader, it's going to happen almost every day. Like I, I can't think of really a, a colossal failure because at every turn, you know, you get knocked down, you get back up. You make a mistake, you apologize. You keep growing and developing. You have a failed marriage. You do the best you can to take care of your children. You have financial struggles. You bounce back and realize money's not everything. Considering the fact that when I was 30 years old, I was living in a two-bedroom apartment, very tiny, with almost no furniture that I, I literally had, a, you know, like milk crates to put a TV on and a futon and that was it. At 30 years old as a captain. So you could consider that a failure, you know, to be at that age of your life and completely starting over from scratch. I've been in hard situations, but I've never considered anything a failure because I didn't give up. So maybe those two are tied together. You know, failure to me is when you just say, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. And, and you know better. Failure is when you know better and you don't take action. Maybe you should call it, you know, giving up or throwing in the towel. And I, I've, never, I've never really done that. I've just made decisions and I keep making mistakes and I'm going to make them the rest of my life. But it's not failure. So it's probably a unique answer. But I, nothing jumps out as a failure. Everything jumps out as make a decision. Well, that might not have gone too well. Make another decision. Make another decision. And just keep moving forward focused on your long-term mission and purpose. What are you trying to do for your family? You know, what are your goals? What are your, you know, uh, aspirations? Sometimes I fail to have patience because I'm very intense and that's, you know, I've been told that. So I've been working on that. I think I'm getting better because I make more fun of myself, but that's it. That was a great answer. Yeah. That is quickly becoming one of my favorite questions especially for military, because I just find that we're all so very type A, driven to mm-hmm. succeed personalities. Just like you said, everyone's going to fail at some point. And the way that people in the military respond to failure, I think it's just really enlightening and can teach people a lot. So here's an interesting scenario. I come back from Hurlburt, back to Rickenbacker, and I just had an active duty squadron commander under my belt. I'm almost done with war college. I have a stratificate, a stratified OPR from a three-star general in AFSOC as, you know, one of 20. So I think I'm a shoe-in to be the squadron commander at Rickenbacker. It's mine to lose. I probably didn't handle myself the way I should have in the interview. 
I was probably a little bit more confident than I should have been. And I should have realized because I was out of sight, out of mind for a year, even though I accomplished a lot, they didn't, the board didn't necessarily know that. And when I interviewed, I was told, well, it was really close between you and Dave Johnson and the coin landed on its side and the wind blew and it fell over in favor of Dave. So we're going to give it to Dave. I was in a car in Washington, D.C., coming back from a commander development course when I was called. I was pretty upset and I'm glad I was by myself in a car because I don't, I didn't take that well. The first thing I did, and I think it was really smart of me to do this because I knew it was the right thing to do, uh, I called Dave Johnson and congratulated him. I said, hey, congratulations. I'll do everything I can to support you. I mean it. And he's like, well, it's got to sting for you a little bit. I know you. We've grown up together. I said, it does sting. Not going to lie. But I'm, I'm going to support you, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Prior to that, when I was told no as the OSS commander, uh, guy that got the job in front of me, Greg Hesterman, good guy for the job, became a mission support group commander. Dave Johnson, the guy that got the squadron in front of me, uh, became the operations group commander at Mansfield. And I have a theory in today's Air National Guard in Ohio. You never know who you're going to be working with or who you're going to be working for. So we all went different paths and now, and we're all very competitive with each other, but now all three of us are joint force headquarters. I ended up being Dave Johnson's wing commander when he was the operations group commander. He became the wing commander at Rickenbacker. Greg Hesterman became the wing commander at the 178th. And now all three of us are back at joint force headquarters. Just so happens, I'm the assistant adjutant general. Greg Hesterman is uh, currently sitting on a COE to 07, so he's promotable. And Dave Johnson, I got to pin him on as a one-star general. And all three of us were staunch competitors. So that could have been considered a failure at the time. But the fact of the matter is, in this profession of military arms, you have to get over it if you don't get a job. You have to move on. You have to be. You have to keep in mind what it's about and what you're doing and why you're doing it. And it's really interesting now that all three of us work together almost every day. But at some point in our career, all three of us were staunch competitors. So it's not a bad thing. Be careful because you never know who your boss is going to be. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here today, sir. I truly enjoyed this interview and I really appreciate your time today. Likewise, I enjoyed being with you and uh, anytime. That concludes today's episode of Beyond the Horizon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you're looking for more ways to connect with the 178th Wing, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also write to us at beyondthehorizonpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep your eyes on the horizon.